When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a lot of misconceptions about Islam. There's a lot of questions about my religion. And I was able to interact with a lot of the public and educate them about Islam. I bring them to the mosque. I take that as an opportunity to educate people that you need to first know your source. Have you even met a Muslim in your life or is your source just mainly the news? People tend to be afraid of the unknown and they tend to judge you based on the limited knowledge that they have. The most dangerous thing is not the lack of knowledge, it's more the illusion of knowledge. So we all need to be educated, we need to have an open mind, and we need to embrace the world as citizens of the world. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Dian Alian, founder and CEO of the GiveLight Foundation. It was a great conversation about taking a different path. So by now, you already know that I actually host a few other podcasts, one of which is Learnings from Leaders, the P&G Alumni Podcast, where each week we feature candid conversations with some of the most interesting leaders in business. Last year, I had the privilege to chat with Dian and was blown away by her story and her work, which you've got to hear. So given that Dian's not just Muslim, but also Indonesian, we thought that featuring our conversation here on Modern Minorities would be an interesting way to bridge both the end to the holy month of Ramadan in the Muslim world, but also the start of Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Dian, while based in San Francisco, is originally from Indonesia, an Asian island nation in the Pacific. So here's a quick bio about Dian. Dian Alian is the CEO and founder of the GiveLight Foundation, which she started in 2005 in the aftermath of the 2004 tsunami in her home country of Indonesia. After losing 40 friends and relatives in this storm, Alian was inspired to provide for children who go through similar devastating circumstances. GiveLight is a nonprofit that creates high-quality homes and education for global orphans. What began as one home for 50 children has now expanded to support over 1,000 orphans in 11 countries globally. With the goal of housing 10,000 children in response to natural disasters, poverty, and war, Dion's making a real difference. In her work, Dion has traveled to four continents and 47 states to engage with children in need from many different cultures, and GiveLight has responded to crises in Indonesia, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Cambodia, and Morocco, building housing for orphan children in cooperation with already established credible partnerships in the area. Prior to founding GiveLight, Dion spent a decade as the outreach director for the Muslim Community Association in the San Francisco Bay Area. And of course, Dion got her start at P&G and brand management, launching brands like Pantene in Indonesia, but also managing the personal healthcare portfolio across the region. 
Dion's work has garnered awards and engagements from Fortune 500s, prominent universities, and she's been featured in Newsweek, The Huffington Post, and many other media outlets. Dion lives in the San Francisco Bay Area and is a mother of her own two boys, but she considers all children that give light reaches as part of her family. What I loved about talking to Dion was learning how deeply personal her work is. It was always something she knew was there, but the soul-searching journey she had to take, leaving the comfortable and successful corporate life, moving into community organizing, and ultimately the big decisions and risks she had to make when tragedy struck. Look, so many of us have experienced loss, and we do our best to process, accept, and move on. But what Dion was able to do out of such harrowing tragedy and turning into something much bigger than her is, is so admirable. Look, on this show, we normally talk to business leaders from big brands that you've heard of, but every once in a while, we want to feature someone you might not have heard of, but should. Something I personally grapple with is, how do I use my powers for good? We all find our own ways to answer that question at home and at work on a micro and a macro level. But I think more often than not, we hear the stories of those that have made it in the way we expect, and then we often discover the unexpected about them. And kudos to all those amazing guests for, for the great things that they're doing and, and the learnings that they've been sharing with us. But I think what you'll really enjoy about this conversation with Dion is that you haven't heard of her. But more importantly, in that her hard decision to walk away, she presents a different path and, and not always an easy one. But this is one that she had to take, that took everything she learned from her professional upbringing and using it to really make an impact on the world and the communities that we're all a part of globally and locally. Look, if you're interested to learn more about the great work that Dion's doing for children around the world, I'd strongly encourage you to check out givelight.org to see where you can contribute and help make a real difference. But for now, I hope you'll really enjoy our conversation with Dion Aliat. Today, we're talking to Dion Alian. She's the CEO and founder of the Give Light Foundation. Dion, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you here. Thank you so much, Roman. It's a pleasure and an honor to be invited. Yeah. So, Dion, so many people know your professional story. You founded Give Light in 2005 in the aftermath of the 2004 tsunami in your home country of Indonesia. Give Light's a nonprofit that creates high quality homes and education for global orphans. But prior to founding GiveLight, you spent a decade as the outreach director for the Muslim Community Association in the Bay Area. And of course, you got your start at P&G and brand management, launching brands like Pantene in Indonesia, but also managing the personal healthcare portfolio. Your, your work has garnered awards and engagements from Fortune 500s and universities. You've been featured in Newsweek, HuffPo, and a lot of media. And there's so much in there I want to ask about. But first, I guess, who were you before that, before the beginning of your career journey? Can you tell us a story from your youth? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I was born in Indonesia in a beautiful tropical island called Sumatra. If you drink coffee, which I know you do, you heard of my <laughs> island, I'm sure. Yeah. Many of my coffees are sponsored by your home. <laughs> so I spent the first 15 years of my life. I had, I would say, an idyllic childhood because I was born into a very loving family, devout Muslim family. And I remember growing up, my father, who was a world traveler, a businessman, and he really emphasized on education. And I remember coming home with my report card. He never asked, did I make it to the next level? It's always, let me see the card. And if they're all A's, he would ask me, where are the pluses in the A? Sounds like Indian parents. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's what. Sounds like thing. any parent. Yeah. Yes. The second thing I remember, I absolutely, absolutely love reading and studying. And I remember my friends will be playing and 
I would really enjoy learning English at that time. So I would open up dictionary and just study word after words and its meaning. And I remember also reading every single book in my school library. I would memorize name of all the countries in the world, the GDP, things that you're not even required to do just because I had that hunger and thirst for knowledge. So that was probably the highlight of my childhood, studying. I got I gotta ask. Yes. How old were you when you were memorizing GDPs? <laughs> Maybe 10, 12. I was wow. in middle school. Yeah, it's not even required, but I just thought you know, it was so much fun to learn about the world and the different culture. And then maybe the last thing I also remember vividly is this desire to connect with the world. So I had pen pals in Iran, in Malaysia, in different countries. So from very young age, I had this dream of seeing the world and understanding other people. I want to ask a personal question just because it was a revelation for me in my 20s when I realized that my dad didn't learn English until he was five or six, and then all of his schooling was in English. So I guess a couple questions. What language did you speak originally? When did you learn English? And were the letters to those pen pals, what language were those in? Great question. So I came from a tribe. So there is a tribal language, which is my first language. And then, so I would speak that with my grandparents. And then- And what's the name of that language? It's called Guyanese, G A. Y-O-N-E-S-S. It's a very small tribe, so you probably will not find it. Maybe if you Google it today, it will show up. But I learned that language, and I spoke that mainly with my grandparents. And then with my parents, I would speak Indonesian, which is our national language, right? Right. And then because my father was one of the very few people in our town who speaks English, every single foreigner who came into our town would end up in our home. So that's how I was introduced to English at probably around the age of maybe I would say eight or nine. And because my father traveled a lot, he would come and bring me books, which I really enjoy learning. So, And then he became my first English teacher. That's my father. And I didn't actually like it, Roman, at that time because I thought what my <laughs> friends were playing, you know, why do I have to learn this foreign language? It was very difficult for my tongue to pronounce the, the correct pronunciation. But I think my father, being a visionary, he understood that this is going to be an investment for my future. So the pen pal was done in English because obviously that's the universal language. That's great. I got to ask another follow-up. What were one of those books that you remember your dad bringing you that you read in English? There are so many. I think originally it's more like a picture books, but then later on it moved into something a bit more advanced. And in fact, there is another story that I would introduce here. My father would become really close to those people who came to visit the foreigners, right? So one of them became his adopted brother. And his name is John Bowen. My uncle John came to our town when he was doing PhD at Harvard University. And he would bring books about French literature or Russian literature. So I was introduced to Duma and Tolstoy and Hugo when I was in middle school. And that launched another dream, which was to come to America, to go to study at Harvard. But then that's a follow-up question for the next stage, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So back then, this little girl learning English from her at-home English instructor with all the visitors from all over the world, what did you want to be when you grew up? 
or what did you imagine you'd become? I wanted to be a doctor. I was set on becoming a, a doctor because the idea of helping people and saving lives was really appealing to me. And I remember reading stories about Mother Teresa, whom we all know, how she sort of gave up her life. She came from a wealthy family and then she traveled to India and she just dedicated her life to helping the poor and the needy. So I look up to her and I thought one day when I grew up, I wanted to find my own way to save lives. So that's why I dream of becoming a doctor. But I also had another sort of dream, which was I wanted to travel the world. So I thought, oh, becoming an ambassador will be great so that I get to travel the world and meet people. And then the third one. So I, I had one, two, three, right? The third goal that I had was I wanted to become an architect because I love beautiful buildings and structure and beauty. And I didn't become any of those. But then we will talk about the purpose of becoming those three, I think I am able to sort of fulfill that in the role that I'm playing today. I was actually going to say, I mean, we're going to get into what you do in a minute, but I would argue that you've accomplished the second one of those with what you're doing today as a bit of an ambassador. One more question about your youth. What was the first way that you made money? Oh, that's interesting. I would actually go to my, my great-grandfather had a coffee plantation. We talked about coffee earlier, so that was huge in my town. So I would go pick my own coffee on the weekend. And then whatever I pick, I'm able to sell that and save that money. So that was the first, I guess, way, a fun way on the weekend to pick coffee in the plantation. How old were you when you were picking at your grandfather's plantation? Oh, I would say maybe around 12. Okay. And you yeah, have two, you have two young boys. Do you tell them that they should be doing the same thing now? <laughs> no, we have a completely different interest, unfortunately. As so many dreams that I didn't fulfill, right? Those three, doctor, ambassador, architect. I wanted my kids to be one of them, but I don't think so. They, I think they also <laughs> have to have their own dream, right? I mean, you cannot impose what you want. I think as long as you... I told them, as long as you fulfill your own potential and you benefit other people beyond yourself, the community, the humanity, then you will be a success in my eyes. So, Dion, I guess back to today, how are you similar to that younger version of yourself or how are you different? I think similar in a way that I never let go of my inner child. I always look at the world full of possibilities. My team would sometimes comment, you don't really see boundaries, do you? I see possibilities in so many things. So I think in that way, it's the same. How I'm different, I guess, is that I've lived long enough to know that not everything you try will be successful, right? But the key is that you have to keep trying, you have to keep moving. And I think as you grow older, you also have more certainty in terms of what it is that brings you joy what it is that at the end of the day gives you satisfaction that you are able to utilize everything that God has given you in a way that really aligns with the whole purpose of your life. And sometimes you don't know what it is, right? You, you have to try different things until you find exactly what you think is meant for you to do in this lifetime. So if we fast forward into your career, can you share some early defining moments from those first years working? Yes. So I joined PNG Indonesia 
because they came to, they did, a lo- I think, a good job with college recruitment. I actually didn't even know about PNG prior to that, but they came to campus. And then I wasn't really sure in the beginning, but then I, the more I learn about it, the more I feel like this is probably a good stepping stone for me because I actually wanted to study in Harvard. As I remember, as you may remember earlier, I did mention about my uncle who studied there and my childhood was filled with t-shirts and souvenirs (laughs) from Harvard. So eventually somehow this idea of this beautiful institution, right, just planted in me, I need to go and study there. So my dream was, another dream was after college was to study MBA in Harvard, but to do that, you need to have an experience, right? And I did forget to tell you, Raman, that my dream to become a doctor actually was very close, but on the day of the exam to the medical school, I got really, really sick because I'd been studying for, I think, about a week nonstop. I forget to eat and took care of myself. So I was actually hospitalized on the day of the exam. So I was really heartbroken because that was my dream. And then I was accepted in engineering school, and I wasn't too excited about that because I thought, hey, this is not really what I wanted. But instead of not doing anything for the whole year, I thought I took it. So fast forward, right? I graduated. I decided to stay because I ended up falling in love with what I was studying and I didn't want to lose that one year. So after engineering school, I thought then MBA. But then I decided to join Procter & Gamble. And I really had to thank my father because the ability to speak English also differentiated me from other candidates. And my first assignment was VIX product. I'm sure you remember. Vicks. No, it's funny. Yeah, no, we, uh, <laughs> it's funny. A lot of people I speak to, or we speak to on this podcast from the region, it's it's funny as Westerners and as Americans, you know, VIX is a brand, it's fine. But when you speak to people from Southeast Asia, be it India, <laughs> the Philippines, VIX is a much bigger, important brand in, in this part of the world. It's massive. So I was at some point a Asian brand manager for VIX. And one of my assignment was to actually study the consumption in India because the largest market, right? So I remember going into focus group in India, I think it was Mumbai, and just looking at the habits of the consumer, they put VIX everywhere, okay? (laughs) 24-7. Exactly, every day, whether they're sick or not. So I came back and I told my boss, there's no way we can change the habits of Indonesian consumers to be like... (laughs) The ones in India. So that was one of the, I guess, memorable experiences. But going back, I think the defining moment was when we launched Pantene into Indonesian market. At that time, we had Unilever was entrenched, right? Like they had the number one brand that has been the market leader forever. So here we are, new to the region. People never heard of even PNG before, but we knew that with superior product and and consumer understanding that we can actually be successful. So I remember working until 4 a.m. on the launch day and all week we launched it. The distributors loved it and it became, I I wouldn't say overnight success, but successful. And, And now I think Pantene is the number one shampoo in Indonesia and in the world so from that launch, you know, I got my ticket to come to America as a young expat. So Dion, you come to the U.S. with your job, and then eventually you move out west and you start working 
in community engagement in the Bay Area. How did you or what drove that transition? Okay, so after I think eight years into my career, I had all the success and the glitter, right? You also work in PNG, so you know all the perks and the benefits. But I felt after a while that two things, two fundamental things were missing in my life. The first was children, and the second was purpose. So I think it took me about a year to really go back and forth and say, do I really want to stay or do I want to find that purpose? Because the plan for me was to go back to Indonesia and and run the company. And then I thought, even if I do that, without becoming a mother, I felt like my life was incomplete. So that was really difficult time for me. And I know that to walk away from something that you had worked so hard your entire adult life was not easy. And also because you know that if you stay, you are guaranteed a very comfortable life when you retire, right? But I also ask myself, I don't want to be 60 and 70 and regret not really exploring the potential that I was born with. And I felt like selling shampoo and soap were no longer what I wanted to do deep inside my heart. So that year, Actually, my husband and I, we went to perform pilgrimage to Mecca, which was obligatory for us once in a lifetime as Muslims. And I was really lost because the idea of going back to work for even the competition like J&J, Clorox, just was not appealing to me. But I know that if I just stay at home and cook all day, I would also go crazy. Does that make sense? So I think my challenge at that time is to really know who I am. What am I good at? What are the talents that I have? And how do I use it in a way that will really benefit the world? So going back to my childhood story, right? I really want my life to be a blessing to other people, not just my own family. But I wasn't quite sure how and what to do. So in Mecca, during the pilgrimage, I focused my prayers on those two things. I said, God, please bless me with children whom I hope to raise to become beautiful human beings and show me what I need to do with my life. What is my purpose? Why did you create me? So I just kept asking that questions. And then my husband moved to the West Coast And that's when I decided to work with the Muslim Community Association, which is the largest mosque in this area. And my goal at that time was just to find something meaningful while I figure out what else am I going to do with my life. But even prior to that, I forgot to say, after I went to Mecca, I went and studied art and fashion in Paris one summer because I thought, hey, I wanted to be a fashion designer. So I actually did that and launch a clothing line before I joined the mosque. But then soon enough, I discovered that success, it was a successful online business, but I discovered quickly that success doesn't translate into fulfillment. Absolutely. So the next chapter in your journey was 2004, when around the world, we saw what happened in Indonesia. Can you talk about that a little bit and what that meant for your life? Absolutely. That was a defining moment in my life. Because my second son was six months old at that time, and my parents were actually here to visit me. And the tsunami happened on December 26, 2004. I lost my uncle, my cousins, friends from my childhood, 
and I watched my hometown shattered into a million pieces. So the pain of that loss was just too much. I was a new mother, and every time I look at my baby, I thought of the loss. 200,000 lives were lost, and in my hometown alone, there were about 30,000 new orphans. So the images of people drowning in the ocean and those children, just too much for me. And I turned to God. I remember again my prayer during the pilgrimage. So I think God answered my prayer that the tragedy was actually the impetus to something beautiful because now that's how Give Light was born. Because you turned your attention to those that were left behind. That's Can you correct. talk more to that? Yes. So... As I mentioned earlier, right, when the pain is too much, then it becomes a driver for you to do something. And for me, writing a check or just doing something short-term doesn't feel enough. So I get together actually with some of my closest friends and people in the mosque and the center know that I am from that region. So there's a lot of outpouring of love and support. They heard about my personal tragedy and personal loss. So they sent me food and flowers and just outpouring of love and support. So I thought, this is nice, but it's not going to help these people in the long run, right? So I then got together with my friends and we brainstormed ideas in terms of what we could do to help others. And we decided to focus on children because they're the most vulnerable and the orphans. And we decided to build a home for them and a future. So that's how it was born. Only two weeks after the tsunami, I remember the day. It was January 8, 2005 at 11 o'clock in the morning. And the name was not there, but the idea was there to help children around the world. And I know that poverty and human sufferings are not isolated to one country and I think because also my work with PNG, I, I see myself as a global citizen. Like the world is my place, and I want the work to benefit not just one country. So we want it to be global from day one. I can imagine you have all these skills at your disposal, learned through experiences in school, engineering, business, your work at the community center. Can you tell some early stories of how you use some of those skills in the early days of Give light when it was just starting to form? Absolutely. So from the beginning, we say we want this to be inclusive. So we need to find a name, right? And we also need to make sure this is not just a hobby that we will do a day or two. Sometimes you get affected, right? When there is something bad happened and, and we are moved by our emotion and we wanted to do something. So to me, this is not just about feeling sad and being affected. Yes, that's a driver, but I think more than that, you need to think and approach it as a business. So from day one, we say, what's the business plan? What's the vision? What's the mission? How are we going to break down this big long-term vision, which is to help orphans all over the world? How do we take the first step, right? So I think the strategy has to be there. But you and I know that even with the best strategy, if you don't know how to execute it well with excellence, it's not going to fly. Yeah. So then we say, okay, we need, to, we need to create a team. And what's amazing was that I had about 10 people in that meeting and almost every single skill sets that we need were in that room. I had a lawyer, I had an accountant, I had a, a web designer, I had an executive from PayPal at that time. So we came together and say, here's the business plan. And we need people. 
we need to build a strong team. And we had that. So I think only, let's say, six weeks, right? So the first thing also we needed to do is we need to make sure that we have, we registered with the government. So we filed for 501c3. And usually it would take about a year to get an (laughs) approval. You cannot believe how it took us literally six weeks we get the approval. Wow. And then money starts pouring in, right? Because my dad was here, as I mentioned earlier, and he was going to go back. So people were knocking at my door saying, can your dad take this money to help people? I think there is a lot of desperation and just a strong desire from people wanting to help at that time. But not knowing how. Not knowing how, right? So I think for me, it was that I created the roadmap and say, okay, we don't know how to do this. I, you know, I, my background was selling shampoo and soap and Pepto-Bismol. I had no <laughs> idea about orphans, really, and nonprofit. But I know for, for sure that if you have a compelling mission and a future that you can really paint in a way that resonates with people, it will be really easy to sort of mobilize and galvanize the community, right? And that's what we did. So the idea of building a home is really concrete for people. And I remember next to where I work, there's a school. And the school decided to do a fundraising for Give Light, right? And they invited me to the school. And I literally could not lift the box they gave me because it was filled with coins, a dollar bill, but it was $11,000 from children. Wow. wow. So what I can tell is that from the very beginning, I see signs of blessings. I see signs of people wanting to come together to build a community of givers, people who have successful career and reach a pinnacle, but still feel that they need to find meaning and purpose in their life. So basically those 10 people, 10 of my friends, who came together now became hundreds, thousands. And from one home in Indonesia, we have now built five homes around the world. And we started with 20 to 40 children. Now we're helping more than a thousand in 11 countries. What I love hearing about this is not only how you were able to turn kind of the pain from an inflection point into kind of a very positive force, but I think something almost anyone can relate to listening to the show is we all have superpowers. And I think the older we get, the more we see, the more we experience, we want to figure out how to use our powers for good, either for our family or for our community. And it's it's clearly something you found. And, I, and I'd imagine it wasn't easy along the way, Dion. Can you talk about in the history of Give Light, you've had a lot of successes. On paper, it looks amazing. But I'd imagine it wasn't all easy. Were there any moments or stories where things weren't working out the way you needed them to or or failures and lessons learned along the way? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So one of the biggest challenges for me was that to manage my own time for my family. I think I shared with you, I had two young boys basically when Give Light was born. So my first was not even two years at that time. My second was six months and then Give Light so now was Now you have born. a third kid. Now you exactly. have a third kid. So I felt like I was raising three children all in one, right? But that's also... If you recall, I had mentioned my prayers, right? I wanted children and I wanted purpose. So I think God was saying, hey, I give you one, I give you two, and I give you a hundred and thousand. Can you handle all these children that you have (laughs) asked me? (laughs) I think this is really the answer to my prayers. And what's amazing is that 
you learn, right, from you try. So the thing, as I mentioned earlier, we tried many different things. And you basically have to learn how to quickly iterate and invest on the things that will have the greatest chance of success long term. So I give you a couple examples. In the early days, we say, hey, let's do garage sale, right, to raise money. So we would do that. And then what ended up happening is people bring their things and not the things that you really want. So I hate to say it's more like their junk that they don't want. So we quickly stop that, right? And then we turn into other events that really engages the community. So for example, we did an event called Global Bistro. So is bringing chefs and bakers from all over the world. And when people are able to use their talents for something, it felt more fulfilling for them, right? So this is something that we've done over the years. We couldn't do it after COVID, obviously, but before that, you would have baker, 40 bakers from all over the world bringing their best signature dishes and people will come, 300, 400 guests would buy anything that we sell is always sold out. So it creates a strong sense of community and people give more than the price of, let's say, Eclair or Tiramisu or whatever we sell there, right? Because they know what it's going for. They know what it's going they for. They know what it's going for. And it's, it's food. Food brings people together. And people who, who loves to bake and cook, they feel like, well, what can I do for Give Light? But when you show them that, hey, just for a couple of hours in a year, you can bake something and it would lead into something meaningful for you, then it's a win-win for everyone. So I think knowing the talents, another thing I was going to say, for me, giving is not just giving money, right? If you are good, for example, in certain skill sets, you can come and join GiveLight. So we actually, in the US, you would be shocked to know that until eight years of operation, we had no paid staff until eight years of operation. Wow. Okay. It's mainly volunteers. And so I use what I learned in PNG on how to mobilize people, how to manage big projects. I was able to implement that, right? But then you reach a point where you can't just run Give Light from my living room anymore. When Google start to match your donation or Apple and all these big companies, you need to be more professional, right? And we decided to hire our first hires for our web team. Because sometimes we have events and the event is done and two weeks later, it's not even on the website yet. Yeah, yeah. You see, so we decided that we need to hire those that are like time critical. Bookkeeping is another thing. You have to be transparent. All your receipts, they have to be issued on a certain time and certain date. So immediately we engage with an accounting firm to make sure that our bookkeeping is clean and that we can account for every single penny that is given to give light. But again, mainly we thrive on volunteers. And even we launched a project recently called Project Inspire. And that is actually bringing tutors and mentors from all over the world to connect with our kids in different homes. So if you're good at English or math or science or even coding, we can sort of create a community of mentors to help the kids with different skill sets and become mentors to them as well long-term. A friend of mine back in Cincinnati actually runs a creative arts nonprofit for underprivileged kind of urban communities. And he was on a podcast and he said, you have to encourage people to give until it hurts. And what he meant by that was it's easy to donate money, to click a button, to pay $100, to go to a dinner, et cetera. But it's when you're giving up something 
you give money and that means you can't now go do something else or you're giving your time, which means you're now not binge watching a show on Netflix, right? But they <laughs> right. give until it hurts where you feel. And I feel like that's kind of a motivating thing, but you have to have a cause strong enough. You have to find the thing inside of people. You have to communicate to them that accepted consumer belief. I want to ask a harder question. Sure. You're Muslim and our audience, many of whom are rising professionals from diverse backgrounds. With Give Light, have you faced any adversity because of of who you are? That's a really good question. Actually, I have not personally, but I do want to address that question at a deeper level, right? As a Muslim please community, do. there's a lot of misconceptions about Islam that women are not allowed to go to school. And I would argue in my role in MCA, whenever we have guests, right, there's a lot of questions about my religion, not for me personally, right? Then I would, I would say, okay, if women are not allowed to go to school, I am an engineer, right? And we had a, a woman president in Indonesia, if I have to remind people, right? We had a woman president and Pakistan has a woman prime minister. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions and ignorance. And that's what motivated me actually to take that role because for 10 years, I was able to interact with a lot of the public and educate them about Islam. I bring them to the mosque. I work with all the universities, Stanford, Berkeley, University of Santa Clara, right? So we create a lot of that platform for people to see and understand. So that's one point. And I think in my role also going back to PNG, I think what people want to see eventually is your ability to deliver, right? The work, and how you carry yourself and how you educate people. So for me, I take that as an opportunity to educate people that you need to first know your source. Have you even met a Muslim in your life or is your source just mainly the news? Because if that's your only source, going back to my own experience, right? People say, hey, when you come to America, be careful, avoid the black neighborhood. Have you heard that? People will say that. So unless I have met, and, and in PNG, some of the brightest people I met, they are from the Black community. So you really cannot judge people based on their color, based on their creed. I think we need to go back into what unites us as human beings, our humanity. So I don't know if that sort of answers your question in a broad stroke, because for me personally, I have not been discriminated against as a person. But I know that there's a lot of misconception about gender inequality, about my religion. And I, for me, when I go speak about GiveLight at Google or Microsoft, and by the way, we are matched. The work that we do is matched by about 80 major corporations through matching grants, right? So I think at the end of the day, people want you to be able to demonstrate result. But at the same time, you need to know who you're dealing with in terms of respecting people as human beings. And I think that sometimes it's lacking because people tend to be afraid of the unknown and they tend to judge you based on the limited knowledge that they have. So I think for me, the biggest challenge for all of us is that we shouldn't judge anyone based on very limited knowledge. We need to educate ourselves really well. And I think... It was Stephen Hawking who said that the most dangerous thing is not the lack of knowledge, it's more the illusion of knowledge. You think yeah, you know, yeah, right? Yeah. But you have been misinformed. So you, I think we all need to be educated. We need to have an open mind. And we need to embrace the world as 
the citizens of the world. For me, as I mentioned earlier, I've always loved interacting with people who are different from me. My first boss in PNG was a Jew, and I remember it was Jewish. And I remember before I was promoted to brand manager, I didn't have a room to pray. And he was so kind when I told him that, hey, Jeff, his name is Jeff Goldstein. If Jeff is oh, I know listening, Jeff, well. oh, <laughs> right? I love Jeff. I, Jeff is amazing. He picked me up from the airport, right? So that shows that he treated me as another human being, right? With respect, with dignity. So I remember he said, hey, and I told him I need a place to, to pray. We have to pray five times a day. And two of those sometimes happens or even three in the workplace. So whenever I needed to pray, he would give me his room to pray. Isn't that cool? <laughs> I 100% agree. I think so much of it is, from a business perspective, you obviously just demonstrate and do the work. But I think there's something to be said about bringing people in, because that Hawking quote is so accurate. It's incorrect kind of preconceived notions, right? And I literally have another podcast. Even the reason I like doing on this podcast is bringing people in to other stories that they don't know. That's literally the purpose of this other show that I do. And I guess to shift back to you a little bit more, it sounds like you had some great help and mentorship along the way, people supporting you. And I think we both know at PNG, there's a lot of Jeff Goldsteins out there, just great people, right? As you worked into the community and as you were building GiveLight, were there any mentors or lessons learned from people along the way in that part of your career? Absolutely. But I wanted to go back to my time in PNG as well. I think one of my biggest mentors is someone whom we all love, Mr. John Pepper, right? Why am I not surprised? So, <laughs> Hi, John. <laughs> there are many times when you feel like this is really, really hard. And then you look at this leader who is so amazing, who treats you with such when you speak to him as if you are the only person in the room, right? He pays exactly. attention. Exactly. He pays attention. So I learned so much from that. So even now when I speak to anyone, even my intern, like high school student, I treat them the same way as I treat my board members, right? So the lesson stays with you even after you leave PNG. And after, I think probably not that many, but I have a few that I would say is like more like a combination of a few people. So for example, there is a nonprofit called Gratitude Network, and they invited me to apply for fellowship. I think there is about 700 applicants from all over the world, and I was chosen as one of the fellows. And then I was assigned a mentor, a coach. His name is Howard Goldman. So Howard is my coach and mentor as well. And then I still connect with my old mentors from Procter & Gamble, his name is Martin Nuktern. And Martin actually nominated me and I received the award in Rome a few years ago. In fact, that's when I reconnected with A.G. Lafley, with Mr. Pepper, and a couple of other amazing leaders from PNG who also received the awards. So from some of those mentors like Howard and the others, are there any kind of important behaviors or lessons that you've modeled off of them? I think understanding the drivers of why people do certain things, right? There are a lot of things that can drive people to do certain things in life. We talked about, I think in our conversation, three strongest emotions, fear, pain, and love, right? Of all the three, which one do you think is the most powerful? It's love. But I think the love. Other two, but the other two, <laughs> but the other two, honestly. Yeah. And, and this leads me to my next question. I do think the other two are easier. Love, I like to think is easy, 
but with some of the pain we've seen in this world, I feel feel like sometimes I think the other ones can be easier, the quick, easy. And that can that leads me to my next question. I mean, it's been a really long year for all of us. Things not working out the way many of us thought they would. And things sometimes being let down by my biggest frustration with the last year wasn't the pandemic. It was how we handled it as a country. And we're both Americans to a degree. We live here. And I think we're turning a corner by the time this airs. Hopefully, things will continue to get better, even though we're in the middle of it right now. What advice would you give to our leaders right now? As someone who's done so much, who's made such an impact on the world, if you were in the room with some of our leaders today, what would you tell them? I think the same thing I tell myself, which is to understand your deepest why. Why are you doing certain things? What's your driving factor, right? And I think going back to my question earlier, if you sort of do things with love, it will be so much different because hate is a factor as well. It's a driving factor, but you will come up with a completely different output, right? You will, it will be divisive. But if you are driven by love, love for the creator who created all of us to be equal, love for yourself, love for the creation, I think the outcome would be something completely different. Do you agree with me? 100%. 100%. Like you said earlier, it's not easy. It's not easy to get there, right? We've actually had a couple of guests on this show say, there's a saying that I've come to love. It's choose the harder right over the easier wrong. And to me, I feel like that applies to a lot of our situations. Dion, <laughs> I could talk to you for hours and we only have a few more minutes, but I hope we'll have the chance to have more conversations soon. Do you have time for a few more fun questions as we wrap things up? Absolutely, I do. So I guess, what's a fact about you that surprises people when they find out about you? That I'm learning my sixth language. (laughs) And what is that? Italian. Oh, wow. Wow. Are you more of a movie, book, or TV person? No TV whatsoever. I haven't watched TV in 15 years. Wow. So movies or books? Your books? What's a book you'd give to a friend? Good question. I've given a few But let's see, the one I really like, I haven't given this book, but I think it really among the one that I would say changed the trajectory of my life, The Alchemist by Paolo Colho. Wow. It's funny. That book has come up many times. Yeah. There's a line there that I use as my signature when we started Give Light. Should I share? Please, please. Okay. If you want something with all your heart, the entire universe will conspire to help you achieve it. Wow. I love that. It is exactly what happened to me because I had never, apart from wanting to have children, to be a mother, I had never wanted anything more than doing what I am doing right now with Give Light. And I saw the universe is coming to conspire to help me every second. Who's someone out there that you would still like to get coffee with? Or tea? Or tea. Hmm. Let's see. I would say... Unfortunately, many have passed on. I would have loved to have tea with Nelson Mandela. And let's see who else that I truly, Mother Teresa, as I mentioned earlier. And there's a lot of figures from my own belief. Some of the earlier Muslims who are very strong, I would have loved to have a conversation with them. The scholars, people who really done great things for humanity. Dion, what's one final piece of advice or even a challenge that you would give to the next generation? I would say that define your own dream. It's really easy to do something because maybe your parents want you to do it or pressure from 
the outside world, right? But I think at some point you need to really understand who you are. And I think this is the question that has been asked since the beginning of time, right? (laughs) Who we are, why are we here? And really know your strength and use it to benefit the world. Until you do that, there's always something missing in your life, no matter how successful you are. If you just live for yourself, for your own family, then your blessing is limited, right? And so that was what I think for me personally drives me every day. I said, I have been blessed in more ways than I think I, I deserve to be blessed. But how can I turn my life to become a blessing beyond just for my own family, but for my community and hopefully for the world? And I think all of us were born with that light in our hearts. We just need to know what it is and we need to define it. And when we know for sure what it is, then it will shine brightly to the world. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Dion, wow. Just thank you so much for sharing your story and your experiences. And more importantly, doing the work that you do. It's invigorating and it's inspiring. And please keep up the great work. Thank you so much for making the time today. Thank you so much for having me, Roman. And I'm sure I'll be contacting you for some questions in terms of our marketing strategy as you offered earlier. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at PG Alum Pod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarvin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.